This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice, and all the latest developments in human resource management. Hello and welcome back. Today, we're talking about how to create a culture of belonging for parents in the workplace. What's happened during the pandemic, which has been quite transformational, is because we literally saw people's families on camera and we can't unsee that now. We'll also be looking into why we must train children to think analytically to prepare them for the world of work. We need to change and shift the way companies are used to recruit and widen a large pool of untapped potential on young people. But before that, let's talk about LGBTQ plus History Month, which is this month, and why it is important. My first guest is John Leavis from Kettering General Hospital. In case you're wondering, because I did, Kettering is a small market town midway between Northampton and Peterborough, and its hospital is really interesting because of the strides it's made in diversity and inclusion, particularly LGBTQ plus issues. John is also the co-chair of the LGBTQ plus staff network, and we talked about why he wanted that role. I used to work in communications in EDI for a mental health trust, and I saw the difference that those staff networks made to people, to staff, to the patients. And so when I joined KGH and I saw there was a vacancy for a co-chair for the LGBT staff network, I immediately applied, really, really wanted to do it, because if somebody isn't championing a cause that I'm passionate about, then who else is going to do it? So for me, it's about championing things that I think are important for staff, for our patients, and also for our, for our trust to show that we are an inclusive and accepting organisation. So for example, things that we might spearhead would be um, the rainbow badge training um, that we started back in 2019. Also, taking part in the current accreditation, the Rainbow Badge accreditation. If I wasn't spearheading that, would the next person be doing it? I don't know. Possibly, but then possibly not. So for me, it's about putting the agenda for LGBTQ people at the forefront of everything that we do as a trust, putting things in front of our directors' noses and saying, are we doing this? Can we do this? What are the blockers? Can we move it forward? So for me, it's all about putting the LGBT agenda at the forefront of everything that we do. Yeah, so tell me more about um, your Rainbow Badge, because obviously this part of our podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, LGBTQ plus history month in the workplace and, and how it benefits people. So tell us about the Rainbow Badge and how it's actually benefited the community and the people who are your patients. So a few years ago, we saw the Rainbow Badge was becoming very popular on social media for the NHS, and we really wanted to get involved. So I was able to I was able to um, acquire funding to, to, to get that project um, off the ground. And one of the things we wanted to do was initially we were going to get people to sign a pledge to say they, they agreed to be an ally and they would get a badge. And at that launch, we wanted one of our local community groups to be involved, a local group called QSpace, who work with uh, young adults, young people and young adults who identify as being um, LGD, LGBTQ plus and also allies. And I spoke to them and they said no. And I was kind of slightly taken aback and said, oh, how come? And they explained that there are a number of organisations, not just the NHS, but a number of organisations that will use the rainbow flag 
to say that they are, you know, they are equal, they are open, you know, they're an inclusive organization. And yet when you actually speak to members of their team, of their staff, the experience is very different. So I had a couple of face-to-face meetings with them and I said, well, how can we work this out? And they said, what we would like you to do is allow us to deliver you some training to staff. And when they have that training, then we will then be assured that when we meet your staff, it's not a tick box exercise. Instead, it's actually something very meaningful. And so we started those. We started those just pre, pre-pandemic um, and we had a few sessions there and they were really, really well received by staff because the way that the the way that QSpace delivered this training for our staff, which was face to face, was in groups. People were able to ask questions. No question was silly. No question was out of bounds. It was a safe space for people to explore. I don't really understand pronouns. What does that mean? You know, if someone says they're non-binary, what does that mean? And it was all these kind of things that people were able to explore. We were also able to deliver that same training to our board. And again, they were equally as receptive to that. Then the pandemic happened and we had to we had to phase back all of that, um, all of that training. However, uh, from the 14th of February, that training has restarted again. And in fact, we're now doing it a slightly different way. QSpace are still delivering the training for us, but they're delivering it in three different packages. The first one is kind of like, um, like I, I, I understand kind of LGBT people, but can you tell me more? Like a really basic package. There's also one for managers to understand what it means they're managing somebody who's LGBTQ plus. And also there's one for um, LGBTQ plus staff and what all of this stuff might mean for them. So I'm really... I'm I'm really passionate about this as a project because whereas other places it may be delivered as you sign a form, you get a badge, you go away. This really means for me that QSpace, who will be talking to people, who will interact with our services as a hospital, can be assured that staff that have attended this training will be confident in speaking to people, whether it's about pronouns or whether it's just a really basic thing. Two men, two women, two people of the same gender, arrive at A&E, they're not making an assumption that, oh, that's just your friend, that's your brother, that's your sister. They may ask an open question, such as, well, who's at home or who have you brought with you today? And not making a, not making an assumption. Or the other, which is saying, well, I'm at home with my partner and then assuming it's the opposite sex gender. Mm. So it's it's really... For me, it, it's it's that is that's the benefit I think for patients. I've had that experience. I've been to A and E with an ex partner, and the person in A and E could not comprehend who I was, and very rudely asked me, "Well, who are you?" Mm. And I'd hate for someone to come to our hospital and have that same experience. You're listening to HR in Review. I'm, I find it interesting that you are also trained up the board members. I mean, how important is it for? people with huge decision-making capabilities also being trained in quite important initiatives like LGBTQ and diversity and inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. For me, I think that any kind of equalities agenda, it's that golden thread that should run through your trust as a whole. Um, I was really overjoyed with that when the board wanted to learn more about it and learn more of those experiences. You know, we all know that boards aren't necessarily as diverse as they could be Mm. but one way that boards can try to be more diverse is to have that understanding so whether that's through things such as reverse mentorship but also through experiencing this training about what it's like to be lgbtq plus and what those simple things are to make life easier for people and the the training is a two-pronged approach for you guys basically because you've got staff 
And so it'll be for staff internally dealing with each other, but it's also for your patients. So how has it been received over the past few years? You said you scale back during uh, the lockdowns, etc. But, you know, since you've started up and, and in 2019, when it actually was created, how has it been received? Follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. I think it's been received really well. Certainly the feedback we've had from QSpace has been has been very positive. As I say, we did have to pause it through the lockdown. And so we've had fewer visitors, fewer patients, etc. coming through our doors. With it restarting on the 14th of February, there will be then an attempt to try and understand what the impact has been for our patients. The other thing is that everybody thinks their initiatives are most important. How do we push certain ones higher up the agenda? And and why is it important to keep having initiatives if, if there's so many of them anyway? Sometimes I think the initiatives are there for a particular purpose. They serve a particular purpose, maybe at that point in time. Like you say, it's an opportunity to showcase the brilliant stuff that you're doing within your organisation or the things that, you, that you're planning to do. But yeah, it is It is for those casual people who might go, oh, I didn't realise that. So recently um, I was promoting the Rainbow Badge training beginning again at KGH. And the way I initiated it was by saying, although we have LGBT equality in the UK, I still would not be comfortable walking down the street holding, holding my partner's hand for fear of, you know, some kind of discrimination, name calling, whatever it may be. And that really puts into context for people because they think, oh, but I, I don't identify as being LGBTQ, I identify as being straight. And actually, that wouldn't even be a thing that crossed my mind. John Leavis from Kettering Hospital. Now, my next guest is Jennifer Liston-Smith from Bright Horizons, which provides employer-sponsored childcare. Jennifer has a background in law and psychology and has worked as a business psychologist and a leadership coach for many years. When she became a parent, Jennifer saw there was a gap in employers' understanding on how to retain talented staff who had become parents. This led her to becoming one of the UK's early pioneers of parent transition coaching. We started by talking about what employers can do now to prevent the continuation of the Great Resignation. Greater autonomy and greater trust, I think these things have come out hugely. In the research that we'll publish, which is the Modern Families Index, there is a lot of mention in there about the huge flight risk that employers are facing with employees, you know, nearly 40% of employees looking around potentially for a new job. So there's a huge need to review the employee experience, to look at engagement. And there are many hygiene factors to that. One is getting the, the choice over working conditions and working arrangements. Another is care. When we spoke previously, actually, you mentioned um, employees are willing to give up some of their salary in a sa- salary sacrifice scheme if employers were to provide care for their children or nursery care for their children. Why is that? Well, one of the, the words that we started using about childcare during the pandemic was that it's part of the infrastructure. It's part of the business infrastructure, just like utilities in a way that, you know, these are things that you can't work unless they are in place. And when we all, well, not all of us, not frontline workers, but when many workers, knowledge workers in particular, went on camera during the pandemic, family life came into view because care and education closed down, you know, rightly because of the pandemic. And and parents were dealing with that daily triathlon of, of being workers, parents and teachers. And what became apparent was 
that you know whether or not the schools were open and and of course you know it's way better when they are and parents have have childcare in place there is a huge juggle and if if care isn't available or it's not affordable for parents or it's it's not accessible for them then it's a huge headache and so looking to to the salary sacrifice part and how that comes in well if you can pay for your childcare out of your gross salary then you make tax savings and the employer can make savings on national insurance also it's kind of a no brainer once you you cotton on to to the way that that can work mm. and speaking about inclusion and belonging and um diversity and i mean we have seen so many studies that says that being mindful of those things in a workplace first of all employees are more productive employees are more likely to stay um, and employees are more likely to be happy what actually are the challenges around this for employers being able to nurture this sort of thing in the workplace if you have any comments on the hr and review podcast would like to suggest a topic or speaker or provide other feedback you can contact us using the email podcast at hrreview.co.uk we look forward to hearing from you yeah it's it's a it's a good question and it goes quite deep in a way you know and and it's quite historic because we've often talked haven't we about unconscious bias you know and often it's just been clumsily unrecognized that workplaces were not inclusive so you know employers would go all out and hire for diversity but people wouldn't stay because they were not being promoted you know you might hire somebody for reasons of neurodiversity or reasons of of you know broader ethnicity inclusion or whatever feature or characteristic or group of people one's trying to to bring on board but then if people get almost sidelined within an organization because they don't fit the the picture of who normally gets promoted then then they're obviously not going to stay because their talents aren't being recognized and their potentials not being um released so so you know that's where in the past mistakes have been made that you can't simply deal in diversity you have to deal in equity inclusion belonging so that people have a voice and and are recognized equally i mean it, it's it's common sense but it unfortunately hasn't always been obvious or visible to to many i mean it is common sense and or it should be rather but i wonder wh- where are the issues for for example is it, are the issues in middle management with regards to promoting people who are diverse or whether that's ethnically or neurodiverse or are the issues lying with middle management is it at c suite where are these blocks that are stopping people and and how do we how do we combat that sure so yeah so where are the the blocks in an organization that that mean we don't promote promote diversity and we don't create inclusion i mean if we come back to to an area that's that's close to my heart and and my niche of of work which is parents and carers working parents and carers then the blocks there might be presumptions and assumptions that are made when somebody returns from taking parental leave they might get onto what what can be called you know a mommy track whatever their gender they might be put on a kind of parents track presumed to be less ambitious particularly if they've applied um especially historically for some kind of part-time working or different working arrangements unfortunately with that can go a presumption that they're not really set on their career that they have so to say other priorities 
And that's without asking the individual what they want. And they may be, you know, gently removed from some project that involves travel or awkward hours, again, on the presumption, almost, of, you know, being kind, thinking, oh, well, we'll, we'll let you off that, that demanding project. And, and people get sidelined out of the, the, the fast track. So, of course, it's quite wrong and it should be about an open dialogue and, and questions. And a lot of when we coach people and managers, we coach individuals and managers through the parent transition, one of the things we're aiming for is, is better conversations. That's a kind of marker for us that if we can get to better conversations about all of these things and about surfacing these assumptions and genuinely looking at what their, their values are and what their ambitions are, you know, together, then you're going to have a much better outcome and much better inclusivity. And also, what about making those projects and um, those meeting times and those challenges, just making them more accessible? So what's wrong with, you know, if you do have to travel, fine, but you can bring your kids. Or um, if you we do have to have a meeting, okay, but it's going to be at 10am and not at 3pm when You've got to do the school run, for example. And also, uh, what is it that causes um, these assumptions? Because surely having a child makes parents more ambitious because they want to do better for their kids, right? So in, in a, obviously, in some cases, they do just want to um, work around their children, and that's okay too. But for those parents who are ambitious, what about them? Why, why do they get left behind? It's true that people coming back from, you know, the life-changing event of, of of giving birth to or adopting a child, they're, they're very likely to be highly motivated at work and, and wanting to get on in order to provide for that child, regardless of their gender. Um, and at the same time, those assumptions might be being made that they're they're less ambitious because of a view of, of parenting. And that, that means that people often have to to speak up in a way. But what's happened during the pandemic, which has been quite transformational, is because we literally saw people's families on camera and we can't unsee that now. You know, care is back in place, schools are back in place, but we we know a bit more mm. undeniably about family life. And in the past, you, you mentioned just now, you know, why don't people simply craft meeting times around family or be more open about needs? In the past, that used to be a source of, of concern. You know, will it look as if I'm encumbered in some way or, you know, not not quite available for my work? And now there are, I think, much more direct and honest conversations going on about family because, you you can have it all if you do it carefully and well and in a win-win conversation with the employer it's about you know not looking at how many hours between you know eight and six or whatever somebody is sitting at a desk it's about the objectives the deliverables that their role is there to provide and how can they deliver those while having a satisfying life and their work being part of that life and I think it's much more possible now for more people to have those conversations than it was before. Jennifer Liston-Smith from Bright Horizons. Why not subscribe to the premium version of HR in Review? You'll get ad-free content, early and extra episodes and more. Even better, although it's the premium edition, it's absolutely free. Sign up at hrreview.co.uk slash podcast. Now, let's hear from Salvatore Negro. 
Salvatore is the CEO of JA Europe, which is a non-profit organization that is also Europe's largest provider of education programs for entrepreneurship, work readiness and financial literacy. Children as young as five can take part in JA's initiatives, which over the past 102 years has been creating opportunities for thinking that simply does not exist within school curricula. One of the key focuses is analytical and entrepreneurial thinking, which Salvatore says is imperative to equip our children for the world of work. Well, actually, we start from five years old and we think it is fundamental because our kids, uh, our children, and I'm a proud father of a seven years old and a four years old, are learning in a different way as we used it to be or our fathers and parents were used it to, to be. So they, uh, uh, the active learning is so fundamental. Uh, we cannot be so rigid when it comes to educational systems that are only adapting passive learning, means memorizing and repeating. Mm. That we complete the typical curricula of schools, but we also have these young people imagining what is going to be the workforce of the future. How they are going to not only know what they need to know, but how they are going to apply what they know. Yes, and what what actually... What do you think stops schools worldwide, it seems, in uh, implementing these vital parts into the, the curricula? Because I, I notice, like, you know, even at my children's school, I have uh, twins, they're 11. They're doing things like what the Romans did for Britain, history, um, climbing Everest. These are interesting things, but not necessarily going to help them in real life. You know, they couldn't write a shopping list, for example, or tell me, what our weekly budget is. So what what's stopping schools from doing this very important work? We cannot just uh, eliminate cognitive skills or we cannot just eliminate content, right? The objective here is to complement it. And over the past decades, governments have, uh, across, across the world, in very different countries, they haven't invested enough. They haven't invested enough in educations, in tools for educations, in uh, um, com- um, building the competences also of the teachers. So in many cases, teachers were left out alone on what they were, <laughs> what they needed to discover the new ways education was moving forward. Do you mean teachers were forced to interpret the, the curricula themselves? Yeah, they, they had to adapt the curricula themselves, right? Because the, um, the educational reforms did not follow the pace in which the labor market was evolving. No, and so it doesn't it doesn't follow that path, and there's been a, a significant gap, and now we are paying the price. So in the past we were talking a gap, but now we are really talking about a canyon. Mm, we continue wow. to train young people for jobs that will no longer exist when they will finish their educational path, their formal educational path. We continue to be rigid on long-term formal certifications when more and more companies are recruiting on specific skills. So here, the importance of micro-credentials, and for instance, we have developed a micro-credential together with European, thanks to the support of the European Commission called the Entrepreneurial Skills Pass, who assesses 
the young people to not only become entrepreneur, but to have that entrepreneurial mindset. Then you can become an entrepreneur or you can utilize those skills to work in an entrepreneurial way in a company or we're so happy that just these days one of our alumni uh, of JA has become the new president of the European Parliament. So even in politics, I'm sure it helped the, the fact that she has gone through our uh, through our programs. That's absolutely amazing. Um, and actually, just speaking of, of skills like that, when we look at university students, you know, you said that uh, schools were giving training on jobs that were not going to exist in the future. And this is happening at universities as well. And I wonder what can be done to quicken the pace of how universities teach and, and what they teach. Well, yeah, exactly. The first thing is to bring uh, the labor market closer to the educational system. And uh, today, JA in Europe works not only with 150,000 teachers in these uh, uh, 43 member nations, but we also work with 150,000 business volunteers from marketing department, financial departments, legal departments, productions departments, that we bring it into the schools, into the universities, because it's the only way that you are associated to the pedagogy that is still fundamental and will be fundamental, that you're already having it at school, but with the real experience that you have it in the private sector. This is a model that has been tested for over 100 years, and it is a model that works. And our longitudinal studies are showing that those young people that have gone through our programs, for instance, have a better chance of being employed, have a better chance of being retained by companies. Because we have all experienced a great resignation. We are experiencing a great resignation these days. And especially of those young people who are changing job every 18 months because they need different stimulus from the company themselves. But this great resignation supposes a cost also to the company. So if one from one side, we want to bring the educational system close to the companies, on the other side, we also have to have the companies closer to the educational, educational system. Now, I do not want to focus only on the great resignation. I want to focus on the great hire because they, we are in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution. And if there is a great resignation, it means that there are jobs out there that are unfilled. Globally, Manpower Group, which is one of our partners, is telling us that 69% of employers globally are experiencing significant difficulties in hiring. So let me put it this way. From one side, we have highest records of youth unemployment. Look at the European Union, just 17%. And on the other side, at the world level, 69% of employers are reporting significant difficulties in hiring. So we need to close that canyon. Yeah. Sorry, could I ask, are you actually saying then that we should put in those vacancies, those mass vacancies that exist right now, we should put inexperienced young people in those jobs. 
Well, we have two ways. First of all, give them an opportunity, okay? Because uh, uh, today it's not only what you learned at schools, but also in your capacity to learn on how to learn. Your capacity to learn on how to learn. So definitely experience is not, not it should not be the only factors when especially you're looking at first-time job seekers. But you are participating in JA program. Since you were 16 years old, you created your mini company. And where you were a CEO, a chief marketing officer, okay. a chief production officer in this mini company, you have already developed those skills. But what the mistakes companies should not do is continue to go on case by case. We need to build a talent pipeline. And in order to be a talent pipeline, you cannot go to the usual folks. You cannot go only to the elite schools, Mm. to the most prestigious schools or university to recruit because those numbers are limited. You have few people who go to there. If you have a massive problem, you have to open your horizons. So HR departments should include, as our report with the NN group just showed, diversity and inclusion officers in their HR departments and widen the opportunities also to those young people who did not have opportunity in life. Give you an example. The pandemic has shown that many of the jobs can be done remotely. This is a tremendous opportunity for young people who live in rural areas and did not have access to to global jobs to be now recruited by companies. This is a tremendous opportunity to go to those young people for their social economic condition, did not have access, did not have the opportunity. So for young people with disabilities. So I think we need to change and shift the way companies are used to recruit and widen because there is a large pool of untapped potential on young people that are not the usual folks. Salvatore Negro from JA Europe. That, my friends, is all we have time for today, but I hope you have enjoyed listening to my guests as much as I love talking to them. Most of all, though, I hope you learned something today. Next time, We'll be talking to a CEO who puts well-being at the forefront of his business after losing a mentor in really tragic circumstances. That is going to be a compelling listen. The HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. hrreview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.